You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. The text for this morning is Genesis 3, verses 1 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, instruct us now, we ask in your scriptures, and may you enlighten our minds, cleanse our hearts, 
that by hearing and meditating on the words, uh, we may rightly see what you revealed in them. We ask that you would speak to us by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love foreshadowing in books and movies. I don't know if you do too, where there's subtle hints at the beginning of a film that tie in all the way back to the end. And one of my favorite examples of this is the 2002 movie Signs. Remember that one? Um, a couple of examples in there, the baseball bat in the scenes, several scenes. Um, then you have uh, the dying scene of the reverend's wife where he, she says, tell Meryl to swing away. Um, then there's the asthma attacks. It's always kind of a threat throughout the whole film and gets to the very end. Um, and then there's Bo, who, the theme of water, and there's Bo that has these gla half-drunk glasses of waters, all, all, water all around the house. Um, and it all plays in and comes back in the very moment there at the end of the film. And I won't spoil it for you. You can go watch it. Um, but I love fo foreshadowing. And today, our text is a true and historical example of foreshadowing in, uh, in the Bible. Uh, it contains the characters, symbolism, and the themes of the whole Bible. And it's a great way for us to begin considering um, this as we enter the Christmas season. For believers, the Christmas season is all about comfort and joy. We sing about that. Found in the morning light of a promise fulfilled. Promises that go back thousands of years where God's people have believed the promise of future redemption through the Messiah. It's hope in future promises fulfilled that we've been hearing about in our Advent readings. So like a farmer waiting for crops, uh, God's people wait in anticipation. The Promises of God orient the people of God to be a waiting people um, with anticipatory hope, anticipatory hope. And that's what we feel every Christmas. Like when you watch your kids as they count down the days until Christmas morning, as it draws near, the anticip anticipation builds. Or like the, the wedding, I think of it every time everyone stands up and the bride turns around the corner. All the anticipa an uh, anticipation of the last few weeks, months, leads to that moment. That anticipation is part of uh, what it must have felt like on the first Christmas. And in order for us to understand this ant anticipatory hope, I think we need to do what the sound of music tells us to do. Let's start at the very beginning. That's a very good place to start. <clears throat> so if you haven't turned there already, I invite you to go to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, it's at the beginning. So if you're looking in a pew Bible, it's literally on, did I say Genesis 2? Genesis 3. Uh, it's literally on page two. Um, so in the next three weeks, we're going to consider the advent of Christ. You might have seen it in the newsletter, Christ, Our Hope. Uh, we're going to do three sermons. Um, we're going to look at the promise today, the birth of Christ, and then the redemption found in Jesus on the cross. Uh, and my hope this morning is that our hearts will be richly prepared for considering the arrival, the birth of Christ here this week. So if you think of it as this as a setup sermon, like a baseball player, the leadoff batter just needs to get on base. That's the hope this morning. We just need to get on base. Um, so Genesis chapter 3. Genesis is a book all about beginnings. That's what it means. Uh, the book sets the foundation for all that follows in the scriptures. We understand that 
In Genesis, God created everything out of nothing, and by virtue of his word, he made this magnificent universe. Genesis teaches us that God made men and women in his image, the crown of his creation, and gave them a mandate to rule for God's glory. We also learn in Genesis 2 that marriage is between a man and a woman, and it is God's idea and intended for our joy, and that together they could function as God's stewards over the world. And that brings us to chapter 3, which we just read fully. Everything was good, very good. What happened? What sets the stage for the whole Old Testament and really the Christmas story? And that's this. In Genesis 3, we uncover humanity's profound problem of sin. Yet, within that rebellion, we find God's precious promise of redemption. There's really just two points this morning. The profound problem of sin and the precious promise of redemption. I want to consider each one of those in turn. So first, you have the profound problem of sin. Humanity has a profound problem. And what is it? It's sin. What's wrong with the world? You know, sin is not a popular idea in our world, in case you haven't noticed. Our world has all but abandoned any idea of sin. We ignore it like an unwelcomed guest or diagnosis. Um, If evil is brought up today, it's rarely ever brought back to sinful hearts. Well, why? Well, because we've lost any concept of the depravity of our human natures. And part of the reason is the concept of sin has often been abused, been used as sin-shaming, or like uh, H.L. Uh, Mencken has said, it, is, it actually is the haunting fear that someone somewhere is being happy. Um, so we want to avoid any sense of that. But we see in our day the discarding of sin entirely leaves us without a clear enemy. It's like bailing water out of a sinking ship um, while totally avoiding the huge hole in the hull. But we can bail with more education, more social policies, better self-esteem, while ignoring the depth and universality of sin. And my point is, as we'll see here in this text, is that sin is baked into our nature as humans and hardwired into our world. It's part of our spiritual DNA. In fact, it lies at the root of all the misery we see in the world. And acknowledging this actually brings hope. Like in medicine, understanding the disease opens our eyes to the right remedy. So it's not hard to see that our world is full of brokenness and uh, misery. I could go through a list, broken relationships, broken marriage, rejection. We can all agree that our world is broken. And even at a personal level, we sometimes want one thing and do the other. Everyone in this auditorium has experienced that at some point. No one wants to be cruel, bitter, and angry, but sometimes we are. In the heat of the moment, we aren't what we want to be. We regret what we've done or what we've become. So what's wrong? Well, Genesis 3 answers this question, uh, and the answer is simply the intrusion of sin. Uh, And here's what we need to see. What is meant by sin, and then how is the world broken by sin? And this is what theologians call the fall. So I'm going to summarize it with a few headings just to help us track along this chapter. Um, There's going to be four headings. The first one is found in verses 1 through 5, and that is temptation. Temptation. This answers the question of how we go from bliss and goodness to what we have today. 
Verse 1, we're introduced to who? The serpent. Well, who is the serpent? Because immediately we see that he's more than a snake. He's described as crafty, which means cunning and deceitful. And in contrast to the goodness that we've seen in the first two chapters, he's a, simply an anti-God figure. In the New Testament, the serpent is identified as Satan, the devil. Revelation 12, 9, John refers to that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So like a covert operative, Satan comes in disguise to tempt Eve. And look how he tempts her. He tempts her not by directly contradicting God's word at first. Did you notice that when we read it? But by questioning it. Kind of like a friend who's asking for money. Doesn't come right out and ask you right off the bat. He warms up to it. That's what Satan does. He first gets the woman to talk about God and about his command not to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Planting a seed of doubt and then the possibility of misunderstanding God. The serpent gets her to focus on the forbidden rather than the blessings of the garden. With kids, you see how this is when you've got the Christmas tree. You can play with all these toys in the living room, but you can't touch the Christmas tree. What do the kids want to do? Yeah, touch the tree. He, she, uh, the serpent gets Eve to focus on the forbidden. And not only that, he misrepresents God's motive. He gets her thinking, maybe God is being unfair. Maybe he doesn't have my best interest in mind after all. And in the end, he outright denies God's word. You will not surely die. See that in verse 4? He's a liar, denying the penalty of sin. And this is the moment where sin, our profound problem that we face today, gets its foot in the door. All creation is about to change. I can't park here very long, but there's a lot we could say about temptation in our lives as, a, as believers. But ignoring Satan's temptations is dangerous. Satan tempts today. It is not just about building new habits. It's not merely even about wrestling against the flesh and the world. The Apostle Peter says, so be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And we can learn who the tempter is and how he operates by observing how he interacts with the woman. So before going on, I just want you to notice one thing. I couldn't resist. One thing from this temptation. Notice the little inaccuracies of the woman's words in verses 2 and 3 when she talks about God's command. Something's lost. God says, you may freely eat. What word does she omit? Freely. Generosity of God is not carried over. Then God said nothing about touching it. And yet she adds to God's word. She says, neither shall you touch it. God said, you will surely die. 
she says, lest you die, leaving out that emphatic word. And I think there's a lesson here for us. If you go all the way forward to Jesus, if he had a, he had a victory over Satan's temptations in the wilderness, how? Because he knew scripture better than Satan did. The woman should have been more careful with God's word. This year, I was introduced to a work by John Bunyan. I love and have read Pilgrim's Progress, uh, which pictures the Christian life as a journey and a pilgrimage. But what I never knew is that Bunyan wrote another allegory about the Christian life called the Holy War. And rather than seeing the life of faith as a journey, he tells about the spiritual warfare between Christ and Satan for the town of Mansoul. It's very good. And there's a point in the book where Satan's been exiled from the city uh, by Christ, and he sends his tempters who are trying to lead the city away from devotion to God. And one of the names, you know, he has pliable in, in Pilgrim's Progress and helpful. And one of the names of the tempters uh, that is sent into the man's soul is Mr. Wrong Thoughts of Christ. And what I think Bunyan and our text is showing us is the importance of guarding against small inaccuracies in our thoughts about Jesus Christ. All right, first heading, we got to go. Temptation, number two, um, under problem of sin again, disobedience, disobedience, breaking God's command. You see that in verse six. Um, the husband and wife, they eat the fruit. And what does Romans say? Sin came into the world through one man. One trespass brought condemnation. This is the moment. This is the moment in history that happens. And we see how temptation leads to sin in verse six. You see that? The woman sees that it's good for food, a delight to the eyes, desire to make one wise. You got food, beauty, and wisdom, all that she desires. She's deceived, but she's not off the hook. This threefold description of Eve's heart roughly parallels John's lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in 1 John 2.16. Because of her own desires, she believes the lies of Satan. And Adam, who is apparently with her this whole time, um, he, instead of rising up and slaying the serpent, which he probably should have done and protected her, no, he goes along. He's passive. Verse 17 makes that clear. And willingly eats the forbidden fruit as well. So we have disobedience. And if you think about it, it's really wanting to be in the place of God. That's what they're wanting here. A number of years ago, when we first went over to Ireland, we met a wonderful pastor and brother named David Martin. And I remember David hearing him give the definition of sin, and I love it to this day. Here it is. Sin is saying, shove off, God. Know to your rules. I'm in charge. And you see that here. Shove off, God. Know to your rules. I'm in charge. Adam and Eve, they grasp what's not theirs. They want to be in the position of God. Not only that, it's also this self-obsessed disloyalty that creeps in, uh, as we'll see when they start blame shifting, even blaming God himself. They're watching out for number one, soon as sin hits. Basically, what does Adam say when God asks him? It was the woman. Take her. <laughs> um, 
not me. Self-obsessed disloyalty is rooted in our sin. And then sin separates us. It makes us unclean, unfit, an offense to God, alienated from God and man, which leads us to our third heading. So you got temptation, disobedience, and then you have alienation. And that's really getting to the results of this sin. Alienation, that's verses 6 through 13, but really the whole chapter. Sin comes into the world, and immediately the effects are felt. And the problem of sin is deeper than we think. It's deeper than we think, because the average person would see the broken world, and I don't think they connect it to sin. But the Bible makes the connection. Here it makes the connection. It alienates us in a number of ways. I see at least four the ways we are alienated, we experience. The first one's probably the most obvious, and that is spiritual alienation. Immediately, they are cut off from God. Um, you see that there in verse 8. They hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves. What was once joy to be walking with the Lord now is fear. They are cut off from God's presence. Rather than walking, they hide. They're afraid of him. Their relationship with God is ruptured. Separation now exists. And it's interesting, we're still all fighting this battle in the world. People are doing anything they can to avoid thinking about God. They're hiding from God. All right, so you have spiritual alienation. This is one of our big problems, if not the core of our big problem with sin. Not only that, you have emotional or psychological alienation. See that in verses 8 and 10. They heard the sound of the Lord, and what they do? They hid themselves. And then verse 10, he said, I heard you in the sound of the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Nakedness is a theme in chapter 2, verse 25. They're naked and unashamed. Unashamed. They're free and comfortable with who God made them to be. And now they are vulnerable, exposed. The figurative covering of being at peace with God is discarded. And there is now at the root of their being an insecurity that if someone knows me, they'll reject me. They know me for who I really am. They'll reject me. Oh, that leads to so much sin. And just the reality that you're exposed and you can actually be hurt. They feel that here. They're uneasy with themselves. They need to cover up so that no one knows who they really are. Know how universal this is. So you got uh, spiritual, you got psychological, then you got social alienation. So this is going to get down into the rest of the text, but the rebellion leads uh, at a, it's at a, vertical level with God, but it's also at a horizontal level. It's separation, and it separates humans, too, as well. We see this in the blaming. Um, there's relational conflict in the context of marriage there in the curse. Um, and I, I think you can draw broader uh, repercussions of this as you read the rest of Genesis. That's all you have to do to look that relationships, not just marriage relationships, are torn asunder. So there's social alienation. And then last, there's physical alienation. Verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. There in the penalty, the ground is cursed. 
There's pain in childbearing and toil, and we are out of step with our creator and, as a result, with creation. Romans 8, creation is groaning. And this is why we can say all the misery we see today can be traced back to this first human sin. All of it. Now all human beings enter the world as sinners and condemned by virtue of their union to Adam. Tim Keller once used this amazing analogy of a clock. So he says, imagine a clock. You open it up and you see all the gears in it beautifully aligned, the pulley system, and everything is working great. Now imagine, he says, one of the gears decides, eh, I don't want to be here. And so it jumps off, and when it jumps off, it falls down into all the other gears and levers. And suddenly you hear grinding and smashing, and you smell burning smoke. The clock is going haywire just because of one gear. We are that gear. We've rebelled, and now the whole world is not working properly because of us. Everything is affected, and that's made extra clear in the fourth uh, heading, and that is penalty. Penalty. And that's verses 14 through 24. We'll go quickly through this. You have three penalty punishments, uh, three curses doled out to the serpent, the woman, and the man. The serpent, on your belly you shall go. The dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That's a sign of judgment. We even sometimes say something like, eat my dust. Um, notably, the curse is actually against, the, 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 not the snakes per se, but demonic power and evil that pervades the world. The woman, there's two, childbearing. He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, commentators draw out that this is broader than just the process of giving birth. It includes all the whole process of uh, birthing and rearing children, including the loss of a child, barrenness, inability because of singleness, and pain. And it's broader, it's broadened to emotional distress. So childbearing now has this pain included with it. And marital conflict. I think the point is that the complementarian nature of husband and wife in chapter 2 is altered. One commentator says this, the woman at her worst will be a nemesis to the man, and the man at his worst will dominate the woman. And then to Adam. The ground is no longer subjected to man. Now he's fighting it. We have toil, thorns, sweat, and it all ends in death. The great enemy. All right, so sin is at the root of what's wrong in our world. Everything is here in this chapter. Goodness of creation is ruined. The image of God is marred. Male and female union corrupted. Harmonious relationship with God is ruptured. And then they're expelled from the garden to face death. Death and decay now dominate the storyline of God's word and his world. Yet, as one pastor says, Living in a fallen world is not the same thing as sinning. Sin has also introduced suffering too, apart from personal sin. We, if we learn anything in this chapter, we learn that sin leads to suffering. It's true at a cosmic level, and it's also true at the personal level. So consider the results. We took up the tree. Now we sweat in work. 
Work is not the curse, but our work now is cursed. We face thorns when you garden, frustration in life, and the ultimate result of sin is death, the dust of death. What does verse 19 say? You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. It's quite the picture that we have, and we could honestly spend a whole month considering this passage. I think there's a way, before moving to our second point, of, of going through Genesis and giving the sense that there's a feeling of hopelessness. But that's not how it reads. I don't know if you caught that as we read it. If you read it again and again, God is in control. And the futility that we all face now, because sin has interrupted our world, the futility that we face is also interrupted by grace. You see that? God's grace can be seen in seeking out the man and woman while they hid. God is the one divvying out the judgment. He is the ruler yet. He clothes them in verse 21 and arguably protects them from perpetually living under the curse by driving them out of the garden. God is a God of mercy and grace even when we fail. Or you could say, especially when we fail. Now, if you're a believer here, can I encourage you today, at some point today, to just sit, get rid of your phone, sit and be quiet before the Lord, reflecting on how you are at peace with your maker because of Jesus. At peace with your maker. And how this reality of being at peace with him should settle all the raging storms of the alienation that we see in this chapter so that your heart can find rest, rest from all your striving. It's what I want for you. It's what I want for me. Sin is the problem. And if sin is, what we need is a savior. What we need is a savior. And that's what we have in verse 15. It gives us, so we have profound problem of sin, and now we have God's precious promise of redemption found in Genesis 3.15. Verse 15 is at the end of the curse of the serpent, and although it's clearly a curse, it's also a promise. It's a prophecy. And in a really real sense, we can understand the rest of Scripture as unfolding from this verse. Well, what does it mean? What's going on here? Is it simply you know, explaining why snakes and humans don't get along? or why snakes go on their bellies. Of course not. What's it saying? The first thing it promise, promises is enmity. Enmity. Between who? Look at it. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So what is it saying? What, it's, what it is saying is basically this. There are two kinds of people in our world. The offspring of the devil and the offspring of the woman. And that now we live in a battle zone, a conflict between, with enmity between two seeds. The seed of the serpent is trying to crush the seed of the woman. And this is the story of the Bible in a nutshell. The battle for this starts in Genesis 4 and can be traced all the way even to this present day. The first seed of the serpent is Cain. How do we know that? We, well, he kills his brother Abel. In the very next chapter, for the serpent, Jesus says in John 8, was a murderer 
from the very beginning, and Cain is the first murderer. So we see in our text that humans are either children of God or children of the devil. From now on, the Bible will figuratively characterize evil, wicked men and women as of their father, the devil. Jesus is hated by the seed of the serpent. Why? Because he testifies that their works are evil. Jesus also says in John 8 that those who are part of the seed of the woman will love him. Love Jesus because he comes from God. Two seeds at war, we see it all through the scripture. One quick example is 1 John 3, where the apostle contrasts the two seeds, verses 8 and 9. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, one thing you notice here with this promise of enmity is it's also the first work of God in salvation. The promise is towards the woman and her seed. The serpent already hates God and his people. There will never be a peace treaty between God's people and Satan. That's determined by this promise. God ensures that. He's prompting in the hearts of his people a hatred of Satan and sin. And this really is the first step of coming to Christ. Not worldly sorrow, but a true hatred of sin. One of the cleansing gifts of this remedy. All right, so we have enmity. What else do we see? We see a cure or a conclusion or a reversal, as we just sung, about the effects of the fall. This is the foreshadowing, like the movie Signs, but better. In fact, it's sometimes called the mother promise or the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, declared even before there's judgment of the men, of man and woman. God does not turn his back on for a moment on humanity. No, he promises restoration. He shall bruise your head, a death blow against the serpent. Did you notice that? While the battle is between the two seeds, the final crushing blow is not to the seed of the serpent. No, it's to the serpent itself. Simply, this is a promise of a coming redeemer, a seed, a conquering son. You, you notice the pronoun, he shall bruise your head. While conquering and he will sustain an injury to himself to his heel. Well, this is the anticipatory hope leads up to Christmas. Throughout the whole Old Testament, any, anytime anyone is born to a seed of the woman, the question is, is this the one? Could this be the one to deliver us? The seed of the woman continues not through Cain, as perhaps uh, the woman hoped, Eve hoped, or Abel, but through Seth. Genesis 4, 25 says, Eve says this about Seth, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. She still has hope. The line continues to Noah, then to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and eventually to David and all the way to Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the promised conquering son of Genesis 3.15. The Old Testament from start to finish is messianic. It points to Christ. And when you come to the New Testament, it's clear that the seed will be a conquering royal figure from the line of David who will save his people from their sins. 
He is the Messiah, born of the woman. Listen to Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall, shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And how does Jesus bruise his heel? He does it by dying on the cross. This climactic battle of, uh, in this promise, the conquering son crushes the head of the serpent. Hebrews 2.14, we read it here in the Advent. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So by going to the cross, Jesus, a true and better Adam, doing what Adam should have done, ultimately destroying the serpent who holds people captive under sin, shame, and guilt and alienation, redeeming them and taking the guilt and shame upon himself. Galatians 3 and 4 make this explicit, that God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And what is this redemption? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree so that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, God's seed, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise, spirit through faith. All our hope is in him. And he is the one who will conquer and restore all the misery of this broken world. This is the precious promise of redemption. He will cut the tree of the, the tree at its root, defeating evil, removing hostility between God and humanity, between one another. He will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear. He is the promised one. So think about it. From the tree in the garden to Jesus hanging on a tree so that we might eat of the tree of life. From the garden to another garden, the garden of Gethsemane. Sweat with work. To be in an agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The ground cursed with thorns. And now on the cross, a crown of thorns placed upon his head. And there he tastes the dust of death. But three days later, he rose from the dead. <clears throat> defeating the last enemy, the penalty for sin in our text, the curse of death. And in all this, he delivers the knockout punch, the fatal blow. He crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus has put all his enemies and our enemies under his feet. This is the remedy to all our spiritual, physical, social alienation, to be at peace with our maker through the gospel. And until you personally put your faith in Jesus, you cannot know true comfort and joy. This triumph, you are not dealing with the root problem in your life. If you're not in Christ today, can I encourage you to trust in the seed of the woman? Put your trust in Jesus. He knows your greatest need. In fact, he took care of your greatest need on the cross. And he can release you from your sins. Believers, as we prepare for Christmas morning, what does it mean for you and me? It means we should hear all the carols from this perspective. Anticipatory hope. The hope and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. 
Generations and generations of God's people hoped for a day when the son would be born. And we rejoice, offspring of the virgin's womb, a thrill of hope, joy of every longing heart. And no matter what you're facing, do not let anything steal your joy this Christmas. The weariness you feel with sin will not last forever. I love the line, the weary world rejoices for, for Christ has come to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Take comfort in, in the God who keeps all his promises. He kept this one. He will keep every single one. One last thing as we reflect on this text and we come to the Lord's table in a minute. I was moved by reading this observation from Derek Kidner. I think it's a fitting way to end this morning. He pointed out that the verbs in verse 6, the woman took of its fruit and ate. She took and ate. The man, too, took and ate. Those verbs are so simply stated. A simple step that plunged the whole world into darkness and so much pain and misery. That's what those words, took and ate, represented. Then comes the night before Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and the cup. And those simple words take a costly tone. As Jesus says, take and eat. Same words now speaking of his death on the cross and the remedy for all the sin and the sorrow of the world. What were once words of sin and death are now words of salvation. Take and eat. Let's pray.